Welcome to the Vault Podcast. Classic music reviews presented by IV Creative. Now, here's your hosts, B. Cox and the crew. Greetings and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Vault Podcast. Classic music reviews presented by IV Creative. It's a perspective on the classics from a fresh point of view. We appreciate you for taking your time and lending your ears to our perspective. You could be anywhere listening to anything, but you're right here with us, so we thank you. With you today is yours truly, B. Cox, and we're still in the quarantine with this COVID-19 pandemic, y'all, but we're still making it. Still going to give you the content, what you're looking for, and all the great reviews of the classics that you've been asking for. Once again, shout out to my crew who's not here with me, J-O-D-T, and my boy Dominique, cousin Damo, who have been away from me during this time of quarantine. But shout out to the crew one day. Hopefully, we'll be able to get them all back together for trying to work something out. And of course, for those of you who have been listening, my boy Dominique has been doing his thing on the Raw Sex Podcast. Make sure you're checking that out. Following him on at Raw Sex Podcast on IG. Also, at Raw Sex Podcast 1 on Twitter. You can catch him on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. He's doing great numbers. And, of course, we're talking all things with relationships, sex, love, dating, and everything in between. So make sure y'all go check out the Raw Sex Podcast. As always, shout out to our listeners in the United States and worldwide. Canada, Mexico, Spain, France, Italy, China, Australia, Brazil, Mexico, so many different other places out there. Europe, all across Western and Eastern Europe, Central Europe as well. Shout out to my listeners in Africa, Tunisia, and Nigeria have popped up on the map, y'all. And of course, all my listeners in Asia. We've mentioned China, also Japan, Taiwan, Indonesia, and the Philippines, y'all. We appreciate y'all for taking your time and listening to us. We do it all for y'all and continue to interact with us in our social media. And as always, we like to take you back in time. Our motto here at the Vault Podcast is... Hashtag open the vault, hashtag MBTC for nothing but the classics. And we got another good classic album for y'all here today. Not too long ago, as a matter of fact, just removed as of the recording of this album as of yesterday, is the 25th anniversary of Mob Deep's The Infamous. <laughs> Man, hard to believe that it's been that long. It almost feels like yesterday I can remember when that album came out. Mob Deep's The Infamous was their second album in their catalog. Their debut on what would be Loud RCA Records, 25 years ago, was released April 25th, 1995 on Loud RCA Records. Runtime of 66 minutes and 51 seconds. Mob Deep, of course, the same Queensbridge project that spawned Nas Capone from Capone and Noriega. Also rappers such as Jungle. Also the legendary Juice Crew, which came out of the Queensbridge projects. MC Shan, Molly Maul. So a legendary area in projects, housings, where spawned yet a bunch of rap veterans who made their mark on the game. This was their second album. Their debut album, for those who will remember, was Juvenile Hell, which was released on 4th and Broadway, came out in 1993, but did not do that well. And they had the potential to be able to do good things on that album. It was not in the cards for them to be able to accomplish great things, and the label ended up dropping them, thus entered the opportunity for them to be able to be picked up by loud records steve rifkin the ceo of loud records saw an opportunity to grab another group and they sided with loud and gave them the ability to have creative control over an album like the infamous 
Just to give you more particulars on the release, the executive producers, as I stated, Mob Deep, So Havoc, and Prodigy both had great creative control working with this. Other executive producers were Matt Life and also Shot Free. In addition to producing most of the tracks, which were done most by Havoc and Prodigy, there was also a big influence on production and the overall direction of the album by Shot Free and also Matt Life, but... Also, another contributor here as well was Q-Tip of A Tribe Called Quest, and he produced a few tracks on here underneath his alias, The Abstract. And if you look at the album credits, you can see that The Abstract is there listed as the producer on a few of these tracks here on The Infamous. Now, to give you a little bit of background as far as the album itself. Now, The Infamous, released 25 years ago, uh, was recorded at Battery Studios, Platinum Island Studios, Firehouse Studios, and Unique Recording in New York City. And during the recording of this album, started mostly in 1994, usually what happened is that on the first project that Havoc and Prodigy had with Juvenile Hell, they had quite a bit of the, they had quite the impressive list of producers that worked on their first album, that worked on Juvenile Hell. Just a list of a few of the producers that worked on Juvenile Hell was Large Professor, DJ Premier, Keith Spencer, a few other uh, different other producers such as Kerwin Young, Dale Hogan. So there were producers that worked on this album. It just didn't work out very well. And with this album, they actually took creative control. And a big part of that particularly was that Havoc and Prodigy ended up acquiring most of their studio equipment themselves and pretty much made most of the beats in the Queensbridge department that Havoc had and they used it was described as a minimal production setup all they had was a sampler plus an EPS 16 then eventually they got the MPC a record player and a mixer and that's pretty much all they needed and the reason why they came into producing the albums themselves is because Havoc explained that they started producing because other producers was giving us shit that we didn't like, or they was just charging too much. I didn't know nothing about producing music at the time, but I learned by watching others. And if you've been in the game and you've been a rapper, you sort of know, especially around that time, it was kind of hard to be able to find beats that were either one to your liking or two, probably way too much money because the top producers were already making money. They were making beats for a lot of different artists and if you didn't have the production budget to be able to get, say, a DJ Premier or a large professor or even a, a Q-Tip or someone even like a Dr. Dre or stay even a Pete Rock, those producers who were the top producers at that time, then you had to go elsewhere to find beats. And sometimes you would have producers that wouldn't be of the standard and quality you were looking for. That wouldn't really jive with whatever it is that you wanted. So out of necessity, Mob Deep started producing their own records and learned by getting assistance from the people who were at Loud Records and other folks who were around them in the industry. Namely, in particular with this album, uh, Matt Life and Shot Free, two of the executive producers, worked with them to improve both their lyrics and production. Now, as it stated, doing the research in this album, Matt Life said that Shot worked with them closely on how the rhymes were coming along, and he worked with them on the production. And... He remembered that, you know, the rough version of the album contained about five or six songs and had about four of the singles that we ended up hearing later on. Now, Q-Tip came along, and it's interesting how he ended up being involved with the recording of the infamous. 
he was tapped to be able to uh, work on a few tracks. And he was initially just a fan of theirs. He liked their work. And he ended up coming around the production sessions and also lent his hand on production. Now, as you look at the track listing of the infamous, Q-Tip is listed as a producer on three of these tracks. And you can tell the difference in those tracks between what he produced and what Havoc and Prodigy produced. It's a notably different sound. You can definitely tell the difference as you go through this album. But he worked, and not just on those three tracks. He also worked as helping to improve the drum programming on Survival of the Fittest, on Up North, and then also on Trife Life. Now, his contributions, as Q-Tip described it, was a totally different sound from the Tribe stuff. And he sort of had to go in that direction. And you see that way when you have producers that work with particular established hip-hop acts, such as DJ Premier with Kangstar, such as Pete Rock with CL, Pete Rock and CL Smooth, such as Q-Tip with a tribe called Quest. The one thing that you have to sort of work is the balance between being able to give other artists who you work with work that they admire on your previous stuff with your main group, and then also being able to get the balance on what it is they truly want to be able to accomplish on their album. And that may that sound may be st- distinctly different from what you're used to being able to work on. So it does take a skilled producer to be able to sort of make that feel. And I think Q-Tip did had a very good balance on the three tracks that he produced on this. Also, what Q-Tip did is he became the album's mixing engineer. And Matt Life explained that he came later in the sessions and he helped mix a couple of records, and then he ended up picking a couple of records that they had to end up redoing. Q-Tip ended up doing and putting his influence on here. They said that he comes around, he heard different things, he changes different, changed different things like kicks and snares and hi-hats and also some of the directions of some of the songs. And at this point, this is when where Havoc, as he was mostly a novice, what he had learned was pretty much, as he described in an interview with DJ Vlad, that he had learned a lot of the things he production-wise from, ironically enough, Prodigy, who helped him learn how to be able to sample initially. And when they got into the studio working on The Infamous, you could see that Havoc was starting to learn as he was watching Q-Tip do some of these things. And at this point, Tribe Called Quest had put out three classic albums, They were on the heels of coming off a wildly successful album in Midnight Marauders. And you could see that now Havoc, he was starting to implement what he had already known and then seeing with Tip showing some tricks of the trade, showing him the formats, the formulas, how to be able to do things. And then he took that and sort of started to make it his own. So you could see how Havoc started to develop as a producer once he had someone to show him some different ropes and different tricks such as Q-Tip. And when you do that and put it together, you get a pretty good formula, something that can work out pretty well. So production-wise, that's how things worked out. So Q-Tip lending his hand to the infamous, which a lot of people probably didn't know until too recently when the stories started emerging. So just to take you back to the scene as far as how things were, my first reaction when I first heard the album. So I'm going to take you back to where I was when the infamous came out. Now, of course, those of you who have been listening for a while, you know, I was pretty young at that time. I was actually in the seventh grade. <laughs> My seventh grade at Benjamin Tasker Middle School was getting ready to end, and I was heading into the summer of 1995. To speak about how things were during that summer, let's talk about 1995 as sort of like as a, as a whole in hip-hop music. Heading into 1995, you could definitely see right after 1994, which was a great year in hip-hop, many good releases, uh, we talked about Illmatic. We've uh, covered last year Southern Playlist of Cadillac Music. We also uh, have looked at albums like J. Rudy Damages, The Sun Always Ri- Sun Rises in the East, 
you also look at the previous year with stuff like Black Moon Enter the Stage, also Ready to Die with Biggie, which is in 1994, also albums like Hard to Earn, and then also another album, the emergence of like the Boop Can't Click, and then the uh, solidification of Digging in a Crates crew, people like Lord Finesse and Showin' AG and Diamond D, and at this time, Big L. And what you saw was a reemergence of the style of East Coast rap because heading into the early 90s, that's when the West Coast had become a force in hip-hop and they were the dominant force within the game. With Death Row Records, with the Bay Area, Too Short, E-40, and the East Coast was just starting to come back in 1993. You saw, like I said, Black Moon, Wu-Tang, Tribe Called Quest. You also saw as 94 started to come in those landmark albums that I named. And this was sort of a continuation of that. You started to see as the East Coast started to reemerge, that this sound was starting to develop as far as when it came to gritty, hardcore street life. And we talked about it earlier this year with the review of Smith & Wesson's The Shining. There were different aspects of East Coast rap, particularly with the New York rap scene. You saw the commercial aspects start to develop with Bad Boy, um, with uh, Diddy and his hitman, and some of the things they did with Biggie and also with Craig Mack. But then you also saw some of the conscious hip-hop, things like A Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul. You would also then see the other part of it where there was a very dark portrayal of street life and things that were rugged, that were raw, that were gritty. You saw that with Boot Can't Click. You saw that with Digging in the Crates. You also saw it in turn with this album. So this sort of followed it in tradition how things were. Now, heading into the summer of 95, I was. this is when I really started to get deeply into hip-hop at this point. I'm into adolescence. I'm getting ready to head into my formative years. So heading into that summer, I remember distinctly hanging out with a few of my friends. And as that summer began, this was one of the albums that we started to put in our tape deck. And at this time, we were still buying tapes. <laughs> and we had a, uh, I think it was a Iowa. Uh, I had an Iowa uh, boombox. I think my boy also had like a Pioneer boombox or a Panasonic, something of that nature. Something that could, pump, that could pump out some some noise. So it was a group of my friends, three of us, four of us all together that all used to hang out. And our routine was that summer, because nobody had jobs, <laughs> we were all kind of rotating between a few different activities. Going to the court in my neighborhood park, riding bikes, uh, and then the other part of it was just hanging out at each other's houses. Now, luckily for us, we all lived in the same neighborhood and we were in close proximity to each other. So we would sort of switch which houses we were hanging out at. And then we would sit there and our soundtrack would be the albums of the day. And this was one of the biggest one heading into the summer of 95. And by the time this album rolled around, it was in prime position for that time that you want to be able to have that summer music, which people have, they keep and they cherish because it sticks with them for so long. And it definitely stuck with me. The one thing I sort of noticed when listening to this as, and I would say, other than like Biggie and some of the uh, boot camp click and DITC stuff I was listening to, it was very raw and rugged, very rough around the edges, but really intriguing at the same time, uh, listening to it and also hearing the singles. Cause at that time you sort of matched up songs with videos. So when it came to this album, you saw two different videos that came out. One of them was survival of the fittest. The other one was of course, shook ones part two. During that time when you would sit there and watch The Box, for those of y'all who remember The Box, it was music videos you control. <laughs> that was the actual motto of the, motto of the Box. It would be a television channel 
where people would call in and request videos and you would have to pay a certain amount to see that video. I remember seeing those two videos really, really frequently, but they weren't like the typical rap videos you were used to seeing at that particular time. They were different. They were gritty. They were rugged. What you saw was a bunch of niggas <laughs> out in the projects and really, really hard music, but it was intriguing to watch because it was different than anything that you saw, like the rap vid music video of people dancing and doing break dances and chord choreography. It wasn't any of that happening in these Mob Deep videos. What you saw was them hanging out pretty much in the projects or something which seemed like the projects with, you know, you remember that there was that Shook Ones video, the survival of the Vitus video literally looked like a regular day in the hood. And it was intriguing. It really was intriguing to watch. What I noticed when listening to it, aside from the visual aesthetics of watching the videos, is that the production matched, matched the lyrics. When you started listening to these lyrics, and something like this I had to learn listen to outside in the garage or at my friend's house. And if I did listen to it in the house, I had to listen to it with headphones on because I couldn't blast music at that age with some of the content that was happening in some of these albums, <laughs> which I always did. But the production matched the lyrics. There was really was a theme that was being built. And you could definitely tell in the samples that were being used some of the things that were happening with the drum programmings and the samples, Havoc used to always said, he said this past week when reflecting on the 25th anniversary of the infamous, he said that he liked more of the darker samples. And it was the taking a lot of these jazz records, as he mentioned, Prodigy's grandmother helped buy them, helped them buy the equipment. And then they used a lot of the records that she had in her house to be able to look at some of these old school soul blues and jazz records. And they liked the samples that sounded a little bit more dark it matched the theme and the lyrics where they were talking about the street life, things in the hood, definitely things like, you know, drug dealings and killings and beef and, and the things that happen in the, in the hood, things that they were seeing on a day-to-day -day basis along that way. You could also hear and see Q-tips influence, especially in those three records. But now hearing that the fact that he was the mixing engineer, it really does make sense hearing the cohesion of the album and also how it comes through on your speakers. One of the things that you can notice when you listen to a tribe called quest records is the way that it comes through your speakers, that bass, and then also how it sounds really smooth, but then you can also hear some of the warmth and then also the grit that comes through, like the vinyl that you're using to sample. That was one of the things that Q-Tip brought along with his influence on this album. You could hear in the infamous. And it's become a, it became a, a favorite of mine's, and it's still a favorite of mine's even to this day that I played really frequently throughout the years. And when I, I used to have the CD... I had a CD collection. I had one of those big CD books. This was in my CD book. And somehow along the way, I don't know what the hell happened to that CD book. It was lost between one of my moves or being in one of my cars or something. But I used to have, I think, yo, at one point in time, like, I don't know, man, between burned CDs and then also with CDs I bought over the years, it had to be close to four or 500 CDs or something like that, man. But this was one of my favorite albums to play. And I would play it when I wanted to be in a certain mood because that's the way that it's, the mood that this that album puts you into. I like to liken it somewhat to what I like to say. It's either when we were in sports and I was playing football, it was either like gym music, like you were working out the football team. This is the type of music you want to play, something that's going to get you in the mood. This is also what I like to refer to as prison yard rap or the, you know what I'm saying? Like this is the type of stuff that folks in the yard will listen to when you out there pumping iron or playing basketball, like hard, gritty stuff. This is the type of things that you would want to hear, but you will equate to something like that. The themes in the album Really, like I said, Street Life, The Hood, Ills of the Ghetto. It really, as I said, served as a landmark album for the return of New York rap. Hardcore hip-hop, it was gritty, rugged. It's a common hallmark of all great albums that came out between 1994 and 95. 
as I mentioned, all those acts that started to have the East Coast reemerge as a force within hip hop. It had the same type of hallmarks. But here's the thing. I mentioned all those acts before, but it was sort of like you had them all following a similar formula, but nobody sounded the same. Like everyone had different sounds. So what was unique about this album with the infamous is that you had this sound that was unique to Mob Deep. Like even now, when you listen to a Mob Deep record, you know, during their glory years, you could tell a Mob Deep record when you heard it. And this was the beginning of all of it. Now I want to get a little bit into the highlights on here. And as I said, this is an album with a runtime of 66 minutes and 51 seconds, but doesn't really seem that long. There also are a few, as they call preludes, or what I would like to call a skits. Now, <laughs> here's a few things that you need to know, at least about the album. And here is an article by Mob Deep that chronicled and celebrated the 25th anniversary to said 10 things that you didn't know about their the infamous LP. Of course, one of the things they said that the skits were completely unrehearsed, <laughs> which doesn't which doesn't surprise me at all, because as you listen to it in the album, it literally sounds like they put a mic up and let either P or Big Noid or Havoc sit there and talk and probably sound like they might have been drinking on something. And especially in particular, <laughs> the one that I point to, which makes me laugh more so anything else is in the infamous preload where you hear pretty much P talking and talking about these fake rap niggas out here. Niggas talk about somehow drunk they get or how high they get, how much they be smoking. You know what I'm saying? I don't fuck with these niggas. Like I punch you in the face just for living, <laughs> which is still a funny ass line that I crack up every time I hear it. And it sounds like the, the skits that are on here sound like they're unrehearsed, but I think what it does is capture a lot of the raw energy that was being, you know, that was being conveyed in those studio sessions. And it felt like they were just going with it. It kind of adds to the, to the intrigue of this album back to the highlights. Now, as far as the highlights on here, there's a lot to get to because this is an album that has, <sighs> A lot of gems on here. And when you talk about the highlights on this album, there are some of the biggest highlights that a group can have in their catalog. In this album, there are a lot of them, and there's a lot of stories that come along with the highlights on this album to me. The start of your ending 41st side was a cool track to me, but the album really picks up right in track number three, which is Survival of the Fittest. And <laughs> Survival of the Fittest is right there on my top five of Bob tracks all time. And it's because that beat, I love that beat. I really do. And it's amazing when you find out the sample that they pulled for that particular, that track, survival of the fittest sampled to uh, sampled a couple of records. The one that you see here in particular is Skylark by Al Cohn and the Barry Harris trio. Now that's where you get that piano sample that you hear in the background. It's amazing when you hear the original, then when you hear how they sampled it, that it's just like, damn, man, like how, how in the world did they come up with that, man? Really, really creative sampling. But that track, though, and also the beginning line for that, there's a war going on outside no man is safe from. <laughs> that, that really sets the tone for that track right there. But this is a really ill track, man. This is one of those Mob Duke tracks when you hear it, you can't help but to sit there and just nod your head. And just to hear that, P and Havoc sort of go and talk about this whole thing about survival of the fittest. This is a track that is endured throughout some time. And one of the things I remember clearly about this track in recent memory is that there was an ESPN 
commercial and a promo for it had one of these wild card games. You know, they came up with this wild card concept with the one 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 game wild card playing, and it was a game between the Pirates and the Giants. And the promo for it was no words. It was just clips of these baseball games of the Pirates and the Giants. And in the background was the instrumental of survival of the fittest. And it made me smile because I was like, yo, ESPN know what's up, man. This is <laughs> this is definitely one of those tracks that you can use for many different uses. I've always said that if I boxed or if I wrestled, then my walk down music or my ring entry music would definitely be survival of the fittest because it's a really, really cool record. And it speaks to about how gritty the life is out there in the hood. And really only the strongest are going to survive for this fight. So that's my big, one of my big highlights. The other is the track right after that. I for an eye, your beef is mine. Featuring Nas and Raekwon. <laughs> Yo, this is an incredible record. I mean, first of all, having P do a good job on this record, but Nas and Raekwon ending this record off, it's sort of like the clash of the Titans. Like, Nas, this to me is probably within his top 15 or so of features all time. And at this point, he was transitioning outside of Illmatic and started transitioning into the It Was Written Nas, the Nas Escobar, as you could say. This was this was Nas Escobar. This was really starting the, the beginning of him transitioning from that Illmatic underground Nas to this mafioso gangster type Nas. And he kills it. And Raekwon, to end the track out altogether, just demolishes the track. And Raekwon, you got to remember, is coming off of Wu-Tang's 36 Chambers and is getting ready to release one of the seminal albums in hip-hop later on that year, only built for Cuban Links, a.k.a. The Purple Tape. And he was in top form on this track. And they were also label mates. Raekwon was on Loud as was Mob Deep was on Loud. Now, <laughs> you talk to many Mob Deep fans, and they'll tell you this is probably one of their favorite tracks of Mob Deep all time because it's a great track, a really, really great beat, and to hear the four of these MCs on this track have P, Nas, and Raekwon kill this for almost five minutes is crazy. Now, another one of my highlights on here, Give Up the Goods, is the first time that we see Big Noid on this album. And at this point, big Noid for a, you know, is, is a contributor and has been a mob deep contributor for a majority of their catalog. He was on this album was also on hell on earth was also on murder music. And, uh, he was actually a friend of havoc and prodigies. And at that time he wasn't really interested in rapping. He mostly was in the streets. He was drug dealing. He'd rather do that than a rap, but he got on there, had a talent for rapping had a particular rap, and if you listen to P, what he says is that the verse that he spit on the the prelude right before on just that prelude is a verse that he had said in the hood that everybody went crazy for. So they decided to have him on this track. Good contributions from both Have P and also from Big Noise. Temperatures Rising is the second contribution from Q-Tip on here production-wise, and it features Crystal Johnson. Crystal Johnson also featured on a lot of different uh, other projects she was also on the main ingredient with pete rock and co smooth 
And interestingly enough, another thing that you hear about the infamous when it came to Crystal Johnson, she had quite the music career. She sung and worked with Pink Floyd as a child, as a vocalist. And then she took that and then worked with many other contemporaries such as Heavy D. She worked with Dr. Dre, Pete Rock, and C.O. Smooth. But she was also collaborating with Pink Floyd. Now, Pink Floyd's one of the biggest rock groups of all time. And she was a part of what they called the Institutional Children's Choir, which they did a lot of different stage productions and musical collaborations. But it's a really good record. That Temperature Rising hook is a hook that that was actually taken from a, uh, the sample from that was actually taken from a couple of different tracks. And one was Where Is The Love by Patrice Russian, Patrice Russian and Body Heat by Quincy Jones featuring Leon Ware. Another one of my highlight tracks, um, I did like Up North Trip. Uh, I think they helped to popularize that phrase of going up north or going up north, of course, means doing the bed. Trife Life, that was another term that they helped coin. Uh, that was a cute one, a, 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 another good track. Uh, right Back At You, which is another one with great features on here with Ghostface and Raekwon. Again, they're getting ready to head into their prime of Only Built for Cuban Links, which they contributed to heavily, and then Big Noid. Cradle to the Grave is a really interesting track. I think to me, this is one of the heaviest songs that they have on here when it talks to about the, the subject matter that they, they speak about. Drink Away the Pain is another Q-tip offering. This to me is one of the more interesting ones, especially that first verse by Prodigy, where they sort of speak about different type of liquors and what they do as far as when it comes to liquor. And this is also features of a verse from Q-tip. So Q-tip actually steps out and then makes a contribution on this as well. But you can definitely tell the difference on this track. Between that, Give Up the Goods and Temperature Rising, the beats are definitely a little bit lighter. They're not as dark as the other ones. And you can tell Q-Tip's influence from his time as a Tribe Called Quest and his other productions. You can tell that these ones are a little bit more lighter than the other ones and they're not as dark. And then the ultimate, <laughs> ultimate highlight on here is Shook Ones Part 2. Now, this beat is legendary. <laughs> the sample itself where everyone knows that piano sample came from Herbie Hancock's Jessica and it took hip hop, the industry itself to figure out probably a decade or longer to find out where that sample came from. Because remember back then I'm using who sampled there were you who sampled didn't exist back then for you to figure out where the heck that sample came from. When you hear the Herbie Hancock Jessica track and then hear how Havoc flipped that into making Shook Ones Part 2, it's one of the more iconic riffs that you hear in hip-hop history, and it spawned their biggest hit. Well, people will say that Quiet Storm, the remix, and the regular is one of their biggest hits, but to me, nothing will ever be bigger than Shook Ones Part 2, because Shook, One part, Shook Ones Part 2, to me, helped take Mob Deep from an act that would have been on the fringe of the industry all the way up close to the top where they were major players. Because at this point, you're like, yo, this track is crazy. And as hard as this track is, people get down to this track in the club. People get down on, on this track when you're in a, say, a concert and a DJ spinning a in-between acts. Yo, people still go crazy over this joint 25 years later, man. It is. And, of course, that first verse by Prodigy, I'd be hard-pressed to see where he had a lot of different verses that were better than this one. Like this, if you want to talk about a magnum opus of a verse, this is the one that put Prodigy right into the conversation. People talk about the most talented MCs out there. I got you stuck off the realness. <laughs> I mean, that's just, what else can you say? What else can you say, man? But 
those are my highlights. Um, I don't really have a lot of lowlights here. I do think, though, the as I said, the skits here, the preludes, though, they're completely unrehearsed and it adds to the in- intrigue of this album. I do say that they, they are a little corny, you know what I'm saying? But you got that with a lot of 90s rap records out there. You got a lot of skits that were, you know, on records that were kind of corny <laughs> and that was that that sort of just added to the era that was sort of the hallmark of the era but to me there aren't really much many lowlights here uh everything here is great from the verses to the production to the sequencing everything on here is is really really well done and it was a good album for mob deep to sort of reintroduce themselves to the game but really great work on here i don't really have any lowlights and even when i listen to it i'm not tempted to really skip any tracks when i play it even now so as far as talking about what my favorite song was then and now it's still the same one my favorite song on this album is still an eye for an eye that's still one of my songs that i'm tempted to skip right to of when i get to this album inside of my iphone like i'm really tempted to go to that one and i still listen to it from time to time i'll pull it up on youtube and just to listen to it, because you really hear some amazing wordplay, particularly between Nas and Raekwon. As far as a song that I appreciate now, more so than then, was Drink Away the Pain. And I'm really, really intrigued, definitely, by the lyrics that I heard on that one. That first verse by P, which is also my notable quotable, is Prodigy's verse on Drink Away the Pain. And my other notable quotables are Nas and Raekwon on I for an Eye, the two of them. I can't pick between which one that I like better. I really is. Those are my probably my two favorite verses on there from guest spots and probably two of my favorite guest spots from any Mob Deep album that I've heard was Nas and Raekwon on I4 and I really is just amazing the things that they were doing and amazing how the two of those artists Nas and Raekwon the direction that they were sort of going into and what their later albums will do in regards to what we call mafioso rap and uh, that type of rap what impact that had on the game of hip hop heading in from 1995 into 1996. And now we get to the ultimate test. Does it stand the test of time? What kind of classic is it? Is a certified classic, borderline classic, or just in its time? And to me, I have to say that this is a certified hip-hop classic. And I say that because if you look at not just the quality of the content of this album, but the reception to this album. Now, there are many times, as you know, what we do here on the Vault Classic Music Reviews is We look at landmark albums that have their 20th, 25th, and 30th anniversaries, and we look to see whether or not they stand the test of time. Just the amount of things that I saw between Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, looking at different publications like Uproxx, like Vibe, like BET, so many of the different things that I've seen about this album definitely had an impact on folks. And you see that sometimes with some of the big ones. But there's something in particular about this Mob Deep album about the infamous and about that time when it came out that people, when they stopped, stepped back to realize what yesterday was looking at the calendar and saying, Whoa, okay, this is the infamous 25th anniversary. And seeing that the, the amount of media that went out to discuss as far as the uh, reactions and the retrospectives and what it meant to the game, what it meant to mob deep's career and how it put them squarely into the industry and into hip hop to where they became a fixture well over the next decade or so where they would put out album after album after album and how it took not just prodigy as a rapper and as someone who would establish a solo career outside of just mob deep, but then also havoc as a producer 
who developed such a sound for himself where he became in that conversation of producers where you know they had a signature sound. This all started right here with the infamous. Just seeing a lot of the articles out here really made me smile to know people still hold this album in high regard and it's still being played out there. And it's not just folks from New York or from Queensbridge or from Queens. It's people from Maryland, from California, internationally, from France to the Netherlands, to England, to South America, to Asia, to Australia, everywhere that Mob Deep went. And as a matter of fact, they were on tour, I would say, about three or four years ago. And DJ Ski, who is a noted classic producer and one of the great producers out there was their tour DJ. You could see the reaction on the videos when they went overseas and toured and did songs from the infamous, how much the crowd reacted to them. And that's the thing when you talk about with classic music, that's one of the hallmarks is how much your music stands with people and stands the test of time. This has definitely stood the test of time. And when you talk about mob deeps catalog, aside from hell on earth, because with some mob fans, they'll sort of argue with you about whether or not it's the infamous or Hell on Earth is their best album, which to me, it's a strong debate. For me, it's personally, it's the infamous, but you can get a debate in there about Hell on Earth. When you start talking about Mob Deep, the conversation normally starts right here with the infamous, and it's going to start with Shook Ones with Survival of the Fittest, with an eye for an eye, would give up the goods, all these different things that come up. And to see the reaction of media and the pieces that came out about this album meeting its 25th anniversary just solidifies it for me, that this is a certified classic. And it's something that I'll continue to listen to even as the years go along. And we'll be listening at the 30th anniversary of The Infamous, and we'll probably see even more things in which people will continue to wax poetically about this. And why not? Because it's a great album, and it's something that really helped divine uh, subgenre and definitely how New York rap was on its way back to being able to make a mark on the industry. Certified classic for me without a shadow of a doubt. So Mob Deep's the infamous 25th anniversary. As a matter of fact, they also had a reissue of the infamous uh, that came out yesterday for their anniversary, 25th anniversary expanded edition, which gives you a version of Shook Ones Part 1, which many people haven't actually heard the original Shook Ones, Lifestyles of the Infamous, and then also a, the instrumental, instrumental of both Shook Ones Part 1 and also from Shook Ones Part 2. As you've seen with a lot of these anniversary expanded editions, these are great things to have, but, you know, something for my deep fans to sort of big, dig into and sort of get into and keep and hold on to these uh, this expanded edition. So definitely go out and check out the Infamous if you haven't. Listen to it and think about the time in which it came out and you can see how it helped to define that sound in that mid-90s and New York rap, how it was on its way back. And that is going to wrap up yet another edition of The Vault. Please make sure you check us out on our host, Podbean, vaultcmr.podbean.com. You can also check us out on any of our social media sites. If you go in the bio of any of our pages, there's the link tree where you can get to any of our social media sites and also all of our streaming sources. You can get us on Instagram at vaultcmrpodcast, also on Twitter at vaultclassic, and on Facebook and YouTube, you can search and get us by searching The Vault Classic Music Reviews. You can find us and follow us on either one of those. Also, you can follow me personally on Instagram at It's Lesson. In addition to the clips and the promotion of The Vault Podcast, you can also get all of my beats there. I have a new beat series calling Beat Craft by Lesson. That's me. B. Cox is also Lesson, my producer name. So make sure you check us out. Follow us on Instagram and interact with us. We love to hear from all of you all and love to hear the feedback and show the love. We appreciate all the support. And if you have a friend, tell a friend and make sure that that friend tells a friend. 
We want you to always remember to keep your headphones on and your music loud, but not too loud. And as we close, we like to remind everyone to dream big because dreams are the basis for creation. Always create, motivate, and elevate because you were never destined or created to stay stationary in this life. Make sure y'all stay safe out there. Stay home and save lives. And on that note, we say peace. Thank you for listening and coming into The Vault. Please subscribe and follow us on Facebook at IV Creative and Instagram at IVECRE8.